is a place for all who suffer from kidney disease. No matter what stage you're at, in your journey we are here for you. KWM is a platform for kidney warriors to tell their personal story. KWM offers many ways to tell your story. Our Warriors Wall is a platform in which we allow the warrior to tell their story in a short blog format. Our Warrior Stories we take your story and we place it on video. With voiceover telling your story. Do you have a message for all kidney warriors? We can give you a message of hope. You come on camera and speak your message of hope to other kidney warriors. Our final conversation starter is our line of kidney warrior merchandise. Go to www.kidneywarriormerch.com KWM Starting Conversations Hey guys, welcome back to Hope with Jonathan and I'm your host Jonathan Trailer. Hey guys, I really appreciate all the support for the show. Really appreciate everyone for subscribing to the show. Appreciate everyone for tuning in tonight. Uh, tonight, guys, we have a very, very special guest uh, all the way from Waco, Texas, uh, Victoria West, a three-time kidney transplant recipient, uh, suffered with polycystic kidney disease. And if uh, you're not familiar with polycystic kidney disease, uh, it's a it's a disease that affects, the, of course, the kidneys, uh, poly meaning many or multiple, uh, cystic meaning cyst, and uh, poly, so polycystic kidney disease. And uh, polycystic kidney disease, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from uh, Google, polycystic kidney disease uh, causes numerous cysts to grow in the kidneys. Uh, these cysts are filled with fluid. Uh, if too many cysts grow or if they get too big, the kidneys can become damaged. Uh, PKD cysts can slowly replace much of the kidneys, um, reducing kidney function and leading to kidney failure. So guys, I know many patients that uh, have uh, suffered with polycystic kidney disease. Uh, usually it involves a uh, family history, uh, but Victoria has a, a different story. And uh, I want to bring her on tonight. Uh, again, guys, she's uh, located in uh, Waco, Texas. And uh, I'm right here in Kerrville, Texas, so shout out to Texas. We're repping Texas tonight. Uh, but uh, really looking forward to uh, her uh, sharing her story tonight. It's going to be an amazing interview, guys. I hope you guys will uh, interact with us and get involved and share this. And uh, again, guys, uh, smash the share button, guys. Go ahead and share this with all your friends and family. Also, if you haven't got a chance to subscribe to us, Hope with Jonathan over here on YouTube, uh, please go ahead and subscribe to us. Uh, we'd really, really appreciate it. Again, guys, you can go over and check out our website as well, www.hopewithjonathan.com. But again, guys, appreciate all of the support for everyone tuning in tonight and really looking forward to bringing on uh, Victoria West uh, all the way from Waco, Texas. Again, guys, hope you guys will enjoy this interview. Please, guys, uh, get involved, engage, comment. Let us know you're here. Let us know where you're from. Really appreciate it. Again, guys, we're going to introduce Victoria West. show victoria hey thank you for having me jonathan how, how are you doing today i'm doing awesome i'm blessed to be here i'm rocking life one right now with uh with a kidney transplant so i'm definitely blessed to be here <laughs> that's awesome yeah that definitely gives you a second life doesn't it it surely does it surely does so victoria uh why don't you take a opportunity to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about yourself okay um well i am from waco texas i am married i have one little boy um my miracle baby he's seven years old um i'm 33 years old and i have had polycystic kidney disease and chronic kidney failure since i was 10 years old. 
Um, I have had three transplants and I've been on dialysis four different times in my life. So that's really the gist of it. <laughs> um, I guess I can wow. you know, talk a little bit about what that experience was like. I know that, like you said, um, there's a lot of patients that suffer from polycystic kidney disease, but mine has been a little bit different from some of the other patients that I have met with PKD. Yeah, usually uh, it entails, you know, family members, mom, dad, brother, sister, just all kind of different aspects where I've seen it kind of go down the line of, uh, you know, many different family members. So, uh, but you say you have a little bit different of a story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Um, so when I was about nine and a half, 10 years old, I started to lose weight really rapidly, never had any other health problems or anything like that. Um, but I lost a lot of weight where my parents and my grandparents thought that I was just going through a growth spurt. Um, then I became tired all the time, couldn't really eat, nauseous. And when I was about 10 years old, they took me to my primary care physician who did some blood work and said, I think you might have kidney failure and sent me to a specialist at Cook's Children's in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, the nephrologist there did do a lot of other testing and they found that I had polycystic kidney disease where, as you described it, my kidneys were actually covered in cysts um, that had grown so large that my kidneys had started to fail. Now, normally this disease doesn't affect a patient until they're later on in life. They don't start seeing the effects of kidney failure until their adulthood. Um, for me, I was actually very young. And so the doctors did say, you know, you're still really young. Your kidneys are still working at a good percentage. It may be 20, 30 years before you need dialysis. Um, it shouldn't happen right away. So I went back probably about six, seven months later for a checkup. And within that six months period, my kidneys had gone from 35, 40% function to less than 10 um, within six months, which is very rapid for polycystic kidney disease. Like I said, it's a very slow acting disease. And what was different for me is that I did not have any family members with this disease. I did not have any family members with kidney failure at all. Um, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, heart conditions do run in my family, but at that age, I didn't have any of those problems. Um, my mother, father, sister, grandparents, nobody had ever had kidney failure. Um, wow. My father did pass away at a very young age. He passed away at 26. And so the only idea that we could have is that maybe he might have been a carrier, but he died, passed away too young for us to know that because he had not been diagnosed before he passed. Wow. Um, yeah, so for me, it was a lot different. It was, it kind of hit us out of nowhere and where most people get diagnosed and then say, okay, within, you know, by the time they're in their thirties or their forties, they may need dialysis. I needed dialysis within six months of my diagnosis. So I started dialysis at 10 and a half years old. My God, that's, that's in 10 and a half years old, starting dialysis. So what, what was that like? as a, as a 10 and a half year old kid? Well, for me, I guess I, I mean, I had an excellent support system. Um, my grandparents raised me and took care of me. My mother was there to help with going to treatments and things like that. I did start off as well with peritoneal dialysis. Um, and because there were no juvenile nephrologists, anywhere near Waco, we would have to go to Dallas, Fort Worth um, wow. to see my nephrologist. So um, I did do peritoneal for about three years at home. Uh, and then we would go back and forth to Cook's for my checkups and everything. Um, but within that last year, I got peritonitis a good six or seven times, um, which for anybody who doesn't know, peritonitis is a bacterial infection that you get with, peritone with peritoneal dialysis that actually affects your peritoneum, which is the sac that kind of holds all of your intestines and everything together. Um, and bacteria can get in through the peritoneal catheter, and that's how you get that infection. And I got that infection six or seven times uh, within a year. 
uh, to the point that the nurse actually thought I was faking it just to get out of going to school. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so I mean, um, you know, we were very careful and we were very clean and everything, but it just didn't work for me. So um, they suggested hemodialysis when I was 12 years old. And um, the only clinic that I could do hemodialysis at that was closest to me as a child was at Breckenridge uh, Hospital in Brackenridge Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas, which is about a two and a half hour drive from Waco. Yeah. So um, we did do that. My mother or my grandparents would take me to dialysis um, three days a week, uh, usually Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. We would wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning, head to Austin, start dialysis by 730 in the morning, and then finish around noon and come home and I'd go to school on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and do dialysis on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, so that was really difficult. I did get lucky enough that I actually had a distant cousin who was only about a year older than me, and he was on dialysis as well for a completely different reason. He, he'd, he'd had an infection that settled in his kidneys. It was not related to my disease. Uh -huh. um, but he was a year older than me and doing dialysis as well. So I would usually stay the weekends with his family in Austin so that my mom could have a break from driving so much and then still do school during the week. So, so, so what was it like interacting with other kids? Like, did they ask questions or did they, were they aware of your uh, condition? I was not very shy about my condition at all. To me, it was just something that happened, just something that I lived with and I didn't really know any different. So I was never shy about it. I remember in elementary school um, after I was diagnosed and they put me on peritoneal and I had the catheter in my stomach. I took all my little girlfriends into the bathroom and I was like, look what I've got. Yeah. But, you know, I, for me, for me, it was just, you know, I, I didn't really know the difference. So I was never really shy about it. Um, yeah. I did. I will. I did get self-conscious about it as I went into high school um, because of my fistula and my fistula did develop aneurysms like many fistulas do. So it was like bumpy and there's just giant scar on my arm. So there were times where I would just wear long sleeve shirts just to cover it up, or I'd always have on like a wristband or something like that. Um, but I, I mean, for the most part, I wasn't shy about it. They knew what was going on. They knew what I had to do. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think I ever really let it slow me down. You know, I, I never really yeah. let it change any other than the fact that I was obviously tired all the time. Um, I was, you know, always, kind of feeling weak and fatigued and everything. And there were days when I would miss school. And at one point I did have to do like homeschool for a while because I just didn't have the strength to go. Um, yeah. But other than that, I never let it slow me down. I never let it stop me from, you know, sharing my experience with my friends and my family. I've always yeah. been very open to talking about it. Well, that's awesome. You know, some people look at their disability as, you know, their life's over and they go crawl in a shell and, uh, you know, they just don't want people to know. But uh, you obviously uh, looked at it completely differently and uh, in a positive way. So that's awesome not to let it stop you. I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't let it stop me is because I was so young. You know, I say this all the time, but I don't feel sorry for myself. I've never questioned why did this happen to me because it's all I've ever known. What I feel sorry for is the patients that have lived a long, healthy, normal life and then this disease hits them out of nowhere and they have to completely change their lifestyle to live yeah. with it. That has got to be hard. That has got to be hard to live your whole life completely normal and then something like this, just life altering happens yeah. to you. For me, I've always known it, but for someone coming yeah. into it as an adult, it's got to be really difficult to change your life that way. Yeah, you're you're looking at one right here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can, can you do? And uh, everything, so it was definitely a a life altering event.
So yeah, it does. I, but, I've met many patients that it's changed their life completely. But we've got a we've got a couple people watching and uh, some people chiming in. So I uh, really appreciate everybody's support out there. Uh, we'd really appreciate if you guys would share, drop a comment, let us know that you're here, let your voice be heard. But uh, again, guys, Shane Blanchard, all the way from uh, Iowa. Uh, he's he's my buddy. Shane, Shane uh, needs a kidney donor over on Facebook. Also, he's involved with the Midwest Kidney Warriors. But I appreciate Shane's support uh, for watching the show tonight. But he had a question, um, said, did you have a fistula at, at a young age? I was 12 years old when I got my fistula. I have had it for 20 years, 21 years, and it finally failed about three weeks ago. It just gave up on me. Wow. Yeah. yeah I've never I'm... had any problems with it or anything. It's always worked perfectly, even between three transplants and going years without dialysis. It always worked perfectly until about, about a year ago, I started having some trouble. Um, they did a corrective surgery on it, and then I got transplanted here in January, and it stopped working just a few weeks ago. Yeah. I've still got mine. Mine's on my uh, lower wrist right here, on my left wrist right here, and uh, I haven't decided to do anything with it. I, I don't know if I'm just going to leave it alone and let it, you know, do its own thing or go get it uh, reversed or whatever, but I, I'm just... I'm like, you know, I don't want any other surgeries. I'm like, I've had plenty of surgeries and pokes and all this stuff. And I, I think I'm just kind of done with it, you know, so. Yeah, I, for I, me, it was a lot of, um, it, back then when I first started dialysis, um, that wasn't an option. They didn't tell me, oh, you can get it reversed. You don't need it anymore. You have a transplant now. Yeah. And in a way, thank God that they didn't because you know, when my transplant did fail, I didn't have to have another fistula put in or anything like that. I just kept going with the one that was working. Yeah. So Shane wanted to know about how your treatments went with that fistula and having, you know, being so young and how they were able to develop a, a fistula with, you know, like such small veins when you're when you're younger. Um, yeah. How well did your treatments go? My treatments always went really well. I remember getting my fistula surgery and I did have the permacath in my chest um, for a couple of weeks. And, you know, they had me build it up. They sent me home with stress balls. I think I still have a stress ball from Cook's Children's somewhere. Um, and so they just had, you know, like pump the, the stress ball and build those veins up. And I never had any problems um, mm -hmm. with my fistula. You know, like I said, up until about a year ago is when I started having a lot of trouble with it. Yeah. I remember the stress ball. They give me that in, as well when I was in center and I would sit there the whole time while I was doing treatment and just uh, when I when I had the central line in my chest and my fistula was still uh, maturing, uh, I would sit there and pump the the uh, stress ball the whole time during during dialysis session. But uh, it was kind of a way to get rid of some anxiety as well while I was yeah. sitting there on the machine. <laughs> yeah, but, I uh, wanted to get it working as soon as possible because, man, that chest catheter is annoying. I, yeah, that it, thing. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Not only is it can be dangerous, you know, because of risk of uh, infection and all that, it just uh, for body image and things like that. I mean, you got this tube hanging out of your chest and it's just kind of like there's really no way to really conceal it. I mean, it's just it's I mean, it's just kind of there. Not. Yeah, I still and, have uh, the scars from several of the ones that I've had, and and I'm just, yeah, I'm just yeah. like, well, you know, it's something that I went through, but it also yeah. it itched so bad. Mine was always yeah. real itchy. So I had to I had the IJ in my neck, and then they converted that into a permacast, uh, you know, in the, in the hospital when I had emergency kidney failure. They had I woke up with this monstrosity of tubing and stuff all in my neck. As a matter of fact. I could barely even move my neck. I mean, it was just like really, really protruding out there. And um, when they converted it to the permacath and all that, it, you know, everything got a little bit better. Uh, but of course, you know, I, I was uh, I was schooled on it right away from my in-center dialysis at DeVita. They were like, you got to get the fistula right away. You want to get rid of that in your chest because of the risk of blood infection and yeah. all this type of thing. So fistula about two months after i was in center i think and then it matured and 
uh, they started using it. They, they started with the baby needles, of course, the smaller gauge yeah. needles and progressed to the 15. I think it's a 15 gauge needle or something like that that they use. And um, anyway, I, I progressed to home hemodialysis later on and got out of dialysis center uh, right around COVID time last year or in 20, uh, 2020. It was in March of 2020. And uh, I trained with my wife and everything, but I ended up with buttonholes. So I got I got rid of doing oh. the sharps. Yeah, and I did the blunt needles in, uh, in my buttonholes. And um, it was pretty successful, kind of a crazy story. As soon as my, uh, as soon as we started with home hemo, I started having problems with my, I think it was my venus. And yeah. uh, I, I had made an appointment to go in and see the, uh, the, the vascular surgeon uh, to possibly have this thing cleaned out or whatever it needed to happen with it. Cause something was going on with it. It was, it was causing a lot of high numbers and stuff like that on the machine. And uh, ultimately I got the call for transplant. And so uh, my day, the day before I was going in to see the vascular surgeon, I actually, the, actually it was the day of that I was scheduled to go in. I ended up in, uh, in the hospital getting my transplant. So I didn't have to wow. even mess, mess with it. Yeah, it was crazy. It really so was. So do you, do you still have a thrill in your fistula now? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. It, uh, if I put it up to my ear and if I lay it on my pillow at night, it, yeah, you can it's, fill it. it's, oh yeah. No yeah. Doubt. With my fistula. So I, so I developed aneurysms pretty quickly, like you know, those big bumps that you see on fistulas. Um, and it's still, I could still had a thrill, even when I had my first transplant for 10 years, I've always had thrill and then I woke up one day about three or four weeks ago and I couldn't feel it anymore and it was hurting and the aneurysms were really hard to the touch and yeah. uh, you know went and had an ultrasound done and they were like yeah it's it's completely clogged and they decided not to do surgery because it wasn't affecting me anymore and it after a couple of days it stopped hurting so now yeah. I can't it's so weird to not have the thrill there that I've had for 20 something years yeah well, I mean, you know, if you're concerned about it, maybe you should follow up, I guess, with a vascular surgeon or something to check it yeah, out. Yeah, I, I talked to the surgeon that did my my rep, my repair surgery back in um, like November. Um, yeah. And he said that it wasn't it wasn't a concern at this point unless it started to bother me, then I would need right. to come in and they might have to do like a angioplasty or something or or close it off. So it, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, you, you're, you've been a three time kidney transplant recipient. So why don't you tell us about how you got your first transplant? Okay. Um, so I was at 15 years old. I had been on, I'd done peritoneal dialysis for three years. I'd been on hemo for about a year and a half. Um, when I was 14, you know, a little bit older, my grandfather kind of went in and said, you know what, this going back and forth to Austin for dialysis, it's too much on us. So he actually convinced one of our local clinics here in Waco to take me as a juvenile patient. So I was the first juvenile patient at the clinics, the um, Fresenius clinics here in Waco. And um, when they took me, they got me listed at the Texas Transplant Institute in San Antonio. And I waited about a year and a half um after being on dialysis here in waco and at 15 i got my first transplant uh and so uh, it was a cadaver um you know they obviously didn't tell me a whole lot i know that she was 16 years old um and i was told that she was a suicide patient i never oh. i never pursued it i never pursued the story i never went out and tried to reach out to her family um, I think at one point they told me that they didn't want any contact. Um, but I know that she was my age. She was a little bit older than me and that she had committed suicide. And that's how I got a kidney. So I, I don't know if that information has ever been shared. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a very hard way to receive a second chance at life at such a young age. Sure. Um and so uh, I did have, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to mention, yeah, that's, that's gotta be tough for family to deal with, you know, and 
that's probably yeah. why they wanted to remain anonymous or uh, didn't want any yeah. contact. Uh, just bring up too many bad, you know, hard feelings and, uh, you know, very depressing for them to have to deal with that, you know, on a reoccurring basis. So, uh, but uh, I, hey, you mentioned Texas Transplant uh, Institute. Uh, that's where that's where I got my my kidney transplant. Was it uh, in San Antonio? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's it's now it's te it's still Texas Transplant Institute or Methodist Specialty and Transplant uh, is what it's called. And uh, yes, that's that's where I got my my kidney transplant. Uh, they have an amazing team. They do a lot of transplants there. Uh, yes. And uh, they're they're a top program. I really uh, I've really had a great experience with them. And uh, so that's that's awesome. That's awesome. So what what ultimately went on with the transplant uh, that it ended up, you know, ended up failing for you ultimately? So um, I was very young when I received that transplant. And like most young patients, I thought, oh, I've got a second chance at life. Let me go drink Coke and, and eat pizza, you know, and do what I want to do. And so I'll admit that the first few years, uh, you know, as a teenager, I didn't take care of that kidney the way that I should have. Um, ultimately, my kidney did last for a total of 10 years. Um, I'm going to tell a story that's very hard for me to tell, but um, Take your time. when when I was 19, um, I had always been told that I would never have children. And it wasn't a, it wasn't that I could not have children. It was that it would be too risky, um, which I knew, but they never told me that. They just said, you can't have children, as if not even giving me a choice. So when I was 19 and... I met my husband, I decided that I eventually wanted to have kids. I was obviously too young at that point, but at, at some point I want to have children. And so I went to my nephrologist and I told them, I said, I want to have kids one day. What do I need to do to get to that point? And they did not think that was a good idea. So me being the stubborn patient that I am, I went and found another doctor. And um, the doctor that I found was out of Temple, Texas, and at Scott and & White, and he actually would come and do clinic in Waco um, a couple times a week. So I started seeing him, and when I was 25, I got pregnant, um, found that I was pregnant on our honeymoon, and um, I lost that baby on Thanksgiving Day, and that was kind of a wake-up call for me. It was, well it can happen it is possible now you've got to take care of business so um after that the doctors changed my medication after the miscarriage and put me on a anti-rejection medication that was going to be safer for pregnancy since i was planning on it um, and i got pregnant with my son in april of 2013. um I, I probably actually got pregnant like in february but i waited a while to take a pregnancy test. And anyway, um, so I did do dialysis during the pregnant pregnancy because at that point my kidney was already failing. Um, I was overweight. My diabetes was out of control. My blood pressure was out of control. And, and then I got pregnant and against a few doctors wishes, I decided to keep the baby. Uh, a few doctors told me it wasn't a good idea that I should probably have an abortion that I wasn't going to survive. And if I did survive, my baby wasn't going to survive. But wow. um, I had prayed for this for so long. And so um, I said, I'm gonna do it anyway. I've, I'm already pregnant, too late now. So um, yeah. I did. And because the transplant was already failing, I did dialysis for four days a week, four and a half hour treatments. Um, for majority of the pregnancy. And because I was so high risk, um, the clinic here in Waco wouldn't take me. So I did go to the Scott and White Clinic in Temple, which like I said, is a 45 minute drive from here. Yeah. So while working a full-time job and fully pregnant, I would either my mom or my husband or another family member would drive me to dialysis 45 minutes away I would do my treatment there in Temple and head back, get home about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, get up and go to work the next day. And I did that for a few months during the pregnancy. Um, my son wow. was born on October 22nd, 
and he was born at exactly um, 30 weeks to the day, to the minute. <laughs> he was born at 30 weeks, so he was 10 weeks early, um, but perfectly healthy, other than being just, you know, a preemie and his lungs being un a little underdeveloped. He was absolutely perfect and completely healthy. And he is seven years old now. And like I said, he's my miracle. Um, yeah. And perfectly healthy. I mean, a perfectly healthy, very smart, very active little boy. And there are times when I want to take a picture of him and send him to that doctor that told me to abort him and just say, look what I did. Oh, you so. should. You should. <laughs> I you never should. did. But. And, you know, because, look, I'm a person of faith, so I definitely believe that, uh, you know, in divine, uh, divine intervention. And uh, I, d I definitely believe that God has a plan for us and uh he definitely had a plan for you and yeah. uh your your son being born and uh you know sometimes we just have to trust the process uh even though we don't understand but I'm I am blown away at your strength that you were you know one you were on dialysis while you were pregnant uh you know and then continuing to work and uh go through all of that I mean it's it had to have been just mentally draining for you. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure about your support. I know you talked about your family. You had a strong support system. But at that point in time, like, where was your strength coming from? It was the baby. It was him. Yeah. I was doing it for him. I was doing it for my husband. I mean, I didn't, I never, like I said, I've never questioned why this happened to me. And I've never let it slow me down. But once I got pregnant, that was it. I mean, I I didn't have a choice. I was gonna do this. And the fact that someone told me that I couldn't do it made me do it even more. Made me want to just prove someone that look, I can do this. I can be a mother. I can have a baby, regardless of what everyone had told me. And maybe that wasn't the right way to look at it. Maybe it wasn't the safest way to look at it. But that's where I got my strength because I had done something and I was going to see it through. And let me tell you, if anything in my story was worth it, it was worth it. It was worth the long days, the long nights. It was worth the pain. It was worth every single second. Yeah. Every single second. Absolutely. And it's you know, um, yeah, after he was born, they told me that my kidney was already failing and that it was going to fail eventually, which it did. Um, but again, 100% worth it. Worth yeah. every every second. Oh, absolutely. So. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. It really is. And uh, I commend you for holding strong to what you knew in your heart was uh, the right thing to do. And uh, that's awesome. So so ultimately, so you say your, your, your first kidney ended up failing. You ended up, you know, going back on dialysis. What ended up yeah. happening that you ended up getting a, a second transplant? So after my son was born, um, I did have to go back on dialysis. And that's when I started doing home hemo. So I started home hemo um, when my son was about three or four months old. And... Um, so here I am with a, you know, little bitty baby at home doing dialysis and having that hemo machine and having the needles in my arm with a brand new baby in my arm trying to feed him while connected to the machine. Um, and I actually only waited about eight months for my transplant, for my second transplant. So he was born in October. Um, I started dialysis again in December. And I got transplanted in with my second transplant in June of 2014. So I was only on the waiting list about eight months. And it was a cadaver. It was it it was not a family member or anything like that. It was a cadaver. Okay. Um, so that second transplant, I, I mean, I'm incredibly blessed. I have met many people who have been on waiting lists for decades. Right. And have waited for transplants forever. And every time that I have received one of my three transplants, my wait was not very long, you know, in comparison okay. to other people that I have that I've talked to. 
Um, so wow. I only waited eight months for a transplant for my second transplant. Um, and that time I tried to do better about taking care of myself and, you know, taking my medicine like I was supposed to. And I wasn't perfect. I'll admit that I was never perfect, but, um, the kidney only failed only after about four and a half years. So my kid, my yeah. second kidney failed in 2019, January, 2019. Where, where did you have the transplant at the second one? The second one was at Scott and White and Temple. They listed okay. me after I had, after I delivered my son, they listed me immediately. Okay. Um, so yeah, the second one was at Scott and White and Temple. Okay. So, so it seems like that the common theme that you were losing the transplants was because maybe you weren't uh, following a, a diet possibly, or uh, what, what was the common, you know, theme of the reasons why you were, was it, was it the polycystic kidney disease continuing to come back or reoccurring? No, P PKD did not affect my transplant kidneys because PKD from my understanding is not transferable. So my transplants failed on their own. Now, obviously the first one failed, I was overweight. It did last 10 years, which is a pretty good lifetime for a kidney transplant and probably would have lasted much longer had I taken better care of myself and probably if I hadn't had a baby. Um, the pregnancy was what was too much for that first kidney transplant. Um, and ultimately that's what caused my transplant to fail after 10 years. Um, the second one, like I said, I was not a perfect patient. I did take my medication, but I didn't follow a diet the way I should have. Um, I, you know, didn't take my insulin the way I should have. And diabetes hit me at 17. So it came after kidney failure, whereas most patients, diabetes is what causes their kidney failure. Right. Um, so no, I was not perfect with my second transplant, but ultimately they could not tell me what caused it to fail. Right. Um, they did do a biopsy after it failed and they did show some scarring from the diabetes, but they told me that it was not enough scarring for it to have failed as quickly as it did. Um, and the doctors, you know, kind of mentioned that maybe I had some other sort of autoimmune disease. Um, and they did test for a lot of different autoimmune diseases like lupus um, and, and a few others. But from what they told me, two different doctors told me that it's possible that I have some type of other autoimmune disease that's underlying to PKD, which is why my kidney originally would have failed so quickly as a child because PKD is so slow acting. If I had another undetected disease underneath that might've pushed my kidney failure along and then ultimately might've even caused my second transplant to fail so quickly. However, they never could find any result of another autoimmune disease. Yeah. So uh, for one thing, they waited in, to do a biopsy until after I'd already lost the kidney. So by that point, it was too late for them to tell what could have caused it. You know, if they'd done a biopsy before it failed, they might've been able to see a progression of something, but because I didn't have the biopsy done until after the kidney failed, they really couldn't tell me for sure this is what caused it. Uh, they did run lots of different blood work and test me for different autoimmune diseases, but nothing came back significant. No. Um, and so ultimately I was told that it's possible I have an, an autoimmune disease that just wasn't detected and that is not commonly tested for. So I don't really know why the second one failed. I probably so, didn't help it, but I don't know why it failed. Right. I mean, sometimes people take care of themselves and the kidney just ultimately decides to reject for whatever reason. And, you know, we, we don't, we don't know why. And a lot of times people think that it's because the person's not taking care of themselves and that's not entirely true. I mean, people can take care of themselves and all of a sudden for whatever reason, the kidney uh, just decides to reject or whatever, you know, whatever the cause is. And it happens. I, I you know, I've, I've actually seen and read stories about people's, you know, kidneys just rejecting for whatever reason are failing. Uh, but uh, we got a quick question here. Uh, what, what's your blood type, by the way? I have someone here that's interested in wondering what's your blood type, if it was AB? I'm B positive. 
be positive? Yeah. Okay. And uh, because of all the transplants, and I'm sure maybe around along the way, you may have had possibly some blood transfusions. I don't know. Uh, yes. Um, uh, do you have a high PRA, which is panel reactive uh, antibodies? Yes, actually, I have uh, significantly high, significantly yeah. high. I have had two pregnancies. I've had several blood transfusions. And with two different transplants before this one, um, I was at the top of the list. Like my PRA yeah. was very, very high. And I was told at that when I was listed for my third transplant, they told me, they said, it's going to be hard. They said, you're going to probably wait 10 plus years for a transplant wow. unless you unless you get a donor, um, yeah. which the only person in my family who would have been a match would be my sister. Um, and she didn't she couldn't donate when I was younger, obviously, but she's a younger sister. She was couldn't donate as a child. Um, yeah. And so with my third transplant, um, she went to get tested and they told her, you know, she didn't meet the criteria. She had some things that she had to take care of before she would be able to do that. Right. Um, but luckily, I actually got transplanted before she even had to worry about going through any of that. Um, right. But yeah, for so I do have a really high PRA um, and I was listed nationally because of that. So, for you know, I'm sure you've probably talked about this before, but when you have a high PRA, you can be listed um, in different categories. So you can be listed by your region, which, for instance, I would be in the DFW region. Um, you can be listed by the state if your PRA is a little bit higher. And then you can also be, be listed nationally if your PRA is like really high, which mine was. Um, yeah. So I, I did. I, I got listed nationally in December of 2019 and was transplanted in January of 2021. So you just got a transplant in 2021. Yep. Was it at uh, Baylor Scott too? No, this one was actually at Medical City Dallas. Oh, that's right. Medical yeah. C City Dallas. So with the high PRA and all of that, and you know, the history of uh, two other transplants, like, you know, they never telling you it's going to be a long way. You, you still ultimately ended up getting a third transplant. So where do you know where this one came from? Or did you get a deceased donor or a living donor? Or how did, how did it work out for you? It was another cadaver. Okay. Um, and almost unheard of, it came from California. Um, so typically when a kidney transplant comes in, they try to give it to someone in that region or in that same state. Because mm -hmm. I was such a high PRA, this kidney became available and it was a relatively good match for me. My mm -hmm. doctors went back and forth on, do we take this kidney for her? Because it's coming all the way from California. It's going to have a really long cold time. Um, is it worth transplanting someone all the way in Texas? But because I was going to be such a hard match, it was like a one in a million chance that this kidney became available for me. So they did. My doctors accepted it from California. Um, it was flight lifted the next morning. So I got the call, um, I want to say, on December 29th. No, December. I got the call on December 30th. got the call on December 30th. Um, and they told me that I would need to be there the next day, the 31st. So I got there New Year's Eve and they didn't transplant me until the following morning. So I got transplanted on January 1st. And wow. because, because that kidney came all the way from California, um, you know, for some people who don't know out there, once they remove an organ from a deceased person, um, it either has to be immediately transplanted or kept alive um, or they put it on ice, which right. they they did send it. Um, I get they from what I was under from what I understand, they kept it alive as long as they could until it could be flight lifted to me the next day. And then it was cold all the way here from California. Right. And I didn't get transplanted until very late that night ultimately the next morning 
Yeah. So um, it did take a while to wake up. Once right. I had it, once I received it, it took about a week or two to officially wake up. Right. Yeah. I ended up getting direct donated from Louisville, Kentucky, all the way to San Antonio. And wow. uh, I, actually, I actually knew my donor. Uh, he had passed away, you know, unfortunately, sadly, but uh, he, he, you know, he was a, he was a donor, uh, he was a registered donor and, uh, you know, they were able to, uh, direct donate to me and they sent his kidney from Kentucky on an airplane all the way to San Antonio. And, uh, I'm not sure how long the kidney had been out of his body. I don't think it was any longer than 24 hours. And, um, you know, they put it right into me and, but like you said, it was a little bit sleepy. It took a couple of days, uh, to, yeah. you know, really get good and functioning in my body and everything. And, uh, I had to spend a couple of extra days in the hospital because of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, cause they told me, you know, you'll be in here maybe two, three days. I was in there about six or seven. I was in there about a week, uh, ultimately, yeah. but I was in with this third transplant. I was in the hospital for three weeks, um, because it did take so long to wake up. And then I got home, started working great, and went back for my follow-up four days later and had COVID. So, oh. Oh, so no. and then I got hospitalized again because I was so fresh out of transplant. They didn't want the COVID to affect me. They wanted to keep an eye on me the whole time, which I'm very lucky that my, my COVID experience was not very severe. I needed oxygen for a couple of days. Um, I had a fever, had some headaches, but other than that, I did not have a really bad case of COVID. Um, so I was ultimately in the hospital for like a month with you, the transplant and COVID. You don't, you don't have to answer this, you know, if you don't want to, but, uh, was you possibly vaccinated before you went in and had to, had, had this third transplant? No, no. Um, that was actually, I, I had not been vaccinated. Um, mm -hmm. and they, I want to say because when did the vaccine even come out? Uh, come I, out I, actually, like... I got vaccinated in uh, 2021 in uh, February. It was around February when I got my first okay. one. So, yeah, so it didn't, um, I, I didn't get vaccinated right away. Um, yeah. I had not been vaccinated yet. I was planning on getting vaccinated, but then they called me for the transplant and um, sorry, I cut out for a second. They called me okay. for the transplant and I went in and I actually caught COVID while in the hospital. Oh. Um, so I had to have gotten oh, wow. it from a nurse or something. So I caught COVID while in the hospital. Then I came home and I was home for about four days. And then I go back in on Monday for my follow-up and I was running a low-grade fever. So they said, we're going to go ahead and test you. And sure enough, I had COVID. Um, and then they doctors told me to wait three months post transplant to get vaccinated um and i ended up waiting six months so i have i've, I've just recently got vaccinated um yeah. but i waited six months because i just i had heard horror stories um and if you've looked at the statistics they're showing that immunosuppressed patients are not reacting to the antibodies the same obviously the same way that a normal patient would so right. even fully vaccinated, we who are immunosuppressed are still at higher risk of catching COVID again. Yeah. So I think I think what it is 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 if you do contract it with the vaccine, you will uh, you know have a greater chance of survival, especially if you're immune suppressed. Right. Uh, you know, with the vaccine vaccination, uh, you know, but. Uh, I just I just wondered if you know you had gotten the vaccination before you had went in for transplant, but it was just a kind of a spur of a moment question since you had said you contracted COVID. But yeah. uh, makes sense though you you got it in the hospital, which you know I'm sure COVID is just lingering probably somewhere in the hospital somewhere. Right, and they that, you know they tested me before going back for surgery. They they test they did a rapid COVID test before I got transplanted. And then, you know, the problems that I was having, they kept telling me was a result of the medication. And so yeah. I really don't know if, you know, like the bowel problems I was having, the aches and pains I was having could have been 
COVID related, or it could have just been related to me just now having a transplant and starting anti-rejection medications again. Um, So I, yeah, I don't really know. I, I did not feel I, my, my husband has had it. A few of my other family members have had it and I don't feel like compared to what I have heard, I don't feel like I had a very bad experience with COVID. I just got really lucky. I just got really lucky, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I would say you're a pretty blessed person. Number one, uh, you know, with uh, three transplants and, uh, you know, and the PRA level, because I know uh, some patients that have have the high PRA level and, uh, you know, they're told it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be a hard road to find a a donor. And uh, one of them is actually watching the show, Shane Blanchard. Uh, yeah, I know Shane. Honestly, Hi, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some others, uh, Chris Ann Hernandez, she has a high PR, uh, a level, uh, you know, I think she's at like a hundred percent and, uh, you know, she's still waiting and, uh, the, you know, there's many others out there that are, that have high PRA levels and they're told it's like a needle in a haystack, you know, that's going to be hard to find that, that perfect match, but, um, you're definitely a best person. You have an amazing story and amazing, uh, positive uh, mindset. Uh, like uh, Shane says, PMA, uh, PMA, I think it's positive uh, mental attitude. And uh, so it's uh, definitely, uh, definitely an inspiring story. But what what's life like now for you now that you're, uh, you know, uh, what you almost you'll be a year post in January. So you're, you're doing well so far. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's been a couple of bumps in the road, but everything's great. I am no longer on insulin. Um, I am still taking diabetic medication, but I don't have to do insulin anymore. I'm no longer on blood pressure medication. I was on three or four blood blood pressure medications at one point, and I am not on any now. Um, I have maintained the weight loss for the most part. Uh, Obviously, my appetite came back after transplant, so I gained a few extra pounds. But um, I feel great enough to work out again. Um, I do, I do yoga a lot and I just started, you know, working out again a lot. Um, having to take a little break right now because I actually gave myself a hernia. Um, I start, I guess I started working out too soon or I must've lifted something too quickly and I gave myself a a hernia and it's gotten, it's gotten pretty big. So I'm actually supposed to have surgery on that soon. Um, but I have, you know, I mean, I, I do have, my energy level is just, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's it's like night and day, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, mine too. I'm bouncing off the walls. I'm actually driving everybody at the house crazy because <laughs> they were so used to me just kind of sitting around the house. And now I'm like, go, go, go. I mean, I'm, I'm walking all the time, uh, you know, four to five miles. When I go walk, I ride a mountain bike. I'm, I'm doing all these extra things that I used to not be able to do, or uh, I didn't do with the level of energy that I have now. So, I think I kind of get on their nerves uh, with all the energy that I have, but um, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a great feeling. And uh, much like you, I was on three blood pressure medications a, as well at one time, some pretty strong ones. I think uh, nifedipine being one of my strongest ones. That me I too. Was on. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, they took me off of all of that. My blood pressure has been really amazing. And uh, you know, my diabetes, uh, my A1C, my last one was a six and uh, which, pretty, pretty good for me. Uh, you know, you're talking about a person that my A1C sometimes were off the charts high. Uh, you know, I think at one time my A1C was like a 13 or something crazy. So I, I've been there. My, <laughs> at one point, my A1C was like a 12 and now it's at 6.8. So that's yeah. a lot. That's better for me. That's yeah, exactly. It's definitely better for me. And I'm not saying that occasionally I may not eat something that, uh, you know, I want to enjoy something, but I've learned to have accountability. And, uh, if I eat a sweet, you know, tonight, then, you know, I won't, I won't eat any sweets for the next two or three days because, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm keeping my sugar levels in, in great reading. And I'm actually finding out that, um, you can have some sweets as long as you, you know, you're doing something on the backside to try to get rid of it, like a, yes. a, exercise and all that type of stuff. So. The walking and exercising really does help. Yeah, it really oh, it does. does. My my grandmother doesn't take diabetic medication anymore because she goes and walks several miles 
And yeah, yeah she, I mean, there, there's a, that, people don't realize that, but exercise really does help with your, with your A1C. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think last night, uh, before I went and walked, just to give you guys an example, my sugar was like 170. And, and when I took my walk, I came back and my sugar had dropped all the way down to a hundred, which is amazing. That's like 70 points. And you know, it's, it's just, that's just the difference is if you're active and you get the blood circulating and the blood flowing, it really helps with the uh, sugar levels. And uh, man, I wish I would have done it when I was in my twenties and thirties. Uh, yeah. But you know, you, you can't go back, but you can definitely look forward to the future and try to help others. And that's why we're here sharing our uh, incredible stories and journeys. And uh, Victoria West, you definitely have an incredible, incredible story and incredible journey. I feel like I need to bring you back so that we can talk about uh, more of your story of maybe a part two later on. Uh, I would love to got, do that. <laughs> and uh, real quick, before we head out uh, off the show, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with your uh, Facebook page, uh, Texas Kidney Warriors. Yeah. So um, I've actually wanted to do it for quite a while. Um, you know, when I lost my kidney transplant this last time in 2019, I had to stop working and I'm just sitting at home twiddling my thumbs and I really wanted something to keep me occupied. Um, and I've always been someone to share my story and want to talk to people and share my experience and hear their stories. And so um, I belong to a few different Facebook groups on um, social media. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. So a few weeks ago, I started um, my Facebook support group for kidney failure patients called Texas Kidney Warriors. And we've got a few members now, but I'm really trying to build that momentum. Um, my goal with that is really just to offer emotional support, patient to patient support. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. But like I told you, if anyone's gone through it, I've probably gone through it, too. And if I haven't yet, I probably will eventually. So I just really like to offer support um, and talk to people, hear their stories, share with them what my experience has been, because there really isn't a whole lot of patient to patient support out there. So um, I'm starting out just based in Texas and uh, most of my members are based in Texas as well, but I'm open to anyone. So anyone wants to join my group, um, I'm going to start trying to do live videos and create more content there just to kind of build momentum and um, get more people involved um, right. and sharing my story. Yep. And I, you know, I really, really admire what you and Shane and Sam, Mr. Kidney is doing. You guys really inspire me. So um, I, I'm just hoping that I can kind of inspire someone too. I really appreciate that. And uh, you're a, a walking, living testimony. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on doing the show and what you're doing with the advocacy. And uh, guys, again, you can uh, check out our group page at Texas Kidney Warriors over on Facebook. Where else can we find you? Are you on Facebook, Instagram? I mean, where, where what other social media platforms are you on? Right now, it's just Facebook. I really had taken a break from social media for a while until I decided to start this group. And so just a few weeks ago, I got back on Facebook. Um, I am hoping, like I said, to start creating some content. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to be through YouTube or a podcast or anything like that. For now, it's probably just going to be Facebook. But Texas awesome. Kidney Warriors, you can join the group. You can message me anytime. I've actually made a lot of new friends through that group. And we've been able to have video conferences and phone calls and just share their story and offer experience and offer advice for anyone going through this, really. I mean, whether you're a patient, you're a loved one, you're a caregiver, um, just it, it's good to get the word out there and it's good to talk about it because that's the kind of support sure. you need as someone who's been through it before. Sure. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, support is crucial when you're battling, uh, you know, a chronic illness such as kidney disease, no matter which, you know, whatever it is, polycystic kidney disease or, or lupus or IGAN or, or whatever you're going through that, you know, has caused your kidney disease. It's definitely uh, support is crucial uh, yeah. and, you, and you definitely need it. And, uh, uh, you know, kidney disease is, is a tough battle for many to to fight. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, there's many warriors out there that have been doing dialysis for many years. I had a lady in my center that's been doing dialysis for like 20 years. 
uh, yeah. which is, you know, I find incredibly insane. It's like, wow, how in the world did they deal with that? You know, it's, it's tough, but uh, obviously, you know, they had a, a strong mental uh, mindset and must have had uh, strong support. And uh, that's the way you can really get through it. And uh, whether you're finding it through your local church or uh, community or friends and family, uh, but, you know, definitely you don't want to face it alone. And Facebook groups can be uh, helpful and beneficial. And uh, so it's definitely awesome that uh, you're doing that. Uh, again, uh, Victoria West, guys, go check out the Facebook page, uh, Facebook group, uh, Texas Kidney Warriors. And again, uh, I, I really appreciate everyone for chiming in. Also want to send a special shout out to uh, Jared Brown, the Warriors Quest Show. He actually had uh, sent me a uh, Victoria's, uh, information. So shout out. To Brown, he actually showed up for the pre mid Whitney warriors. Appreciate you shine, uh, showing up brother. Appreciate you, uh, supporting us. Uh, my mom, Vicki love shout out to mom. Appreciate you mom for watching tonight. And, uh, man, there's so many, uh, so many people that are supporting the show. Really appreciate you guys. You know who you are. God bless you guys. And again, if you hadn't had opportunity to subscribe to us, please subscribe to us. And Victoria, I also want to encourage you, let you know that, uh, you know, you can start a podcast. It's really easy to do. And uh, if you need any assistance at, at all, if you need any help or assistance, just reach out to some of us. We'd be happy to, to help you get started and give you pointers and tips and all of that great stuff. So just let us know what you want to do and, and we'll be uh, willing to help you. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So again, guys, this has been another uh, great interview with Hope with Jonathan. Hope you are uh, inspired by this story tonight. And uh, again, guys, really appreciate all the support. You guys stay safe out there. Remember to take care of your kidneys. God bless you. Thank you.